This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. However you feel about evolution, survival of the fittest, we've got an audio that may show you, um, I don't know. There's just a time where you got to let nature take its course. A bear came across a, a solo kayaker, Mary Maley, who was on a solo kayaking trip from Ketchikan to Petersburg, Alaska. And, uh, you know, was posted outside of uh, the U.S. Forest Service cabin in Berg Bay. And uh, she had just carried her tent, food, and gear into the cabin before she was going to go on a four-mile hike, I guess. So she just removed the food from her kayak and carried it up to the cabin. Well, she heard something outside while she was having her lunch, and she came out to find a bear, right? Um, And the bear started to approach her, and this is the beginning of... I'm pretty sure not the best bear handling technique. Let's listen. No! Get away from the kayak! Stop it, bear! Bear, you're breaking it! You're breaking my kayak! Why are you breaking my kayak? What am I going to do? Stop that, bear! Bear, stop! Stop breaking my kayak, please! Please She is the nicest victim of a bear uh, terroristic act on a kayak I've ever heard. She didn't even swear. That was, okay, it's a bear. It's a bear. It's doing what bears do. By the way, this is after the bear started getting curious about her and followed. uh, She could smell the food she was out there eating. And, uh. Holy cow. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? Gosh darn it. You bear. She's talking to it like it's um like it's her child. Not like a ferocious wild animal that could kill her. And she even and we didn't have the audio for that, but as the bear approached, she said, "I'm going to spray you with pepper spray." She is so nice. I'm sure the bear feels really good about her. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste good. No. It's not even food, bear. It's plastic. It's 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 a carcinogen. You ought not be eating that, bear. It's just plastic. <laughs> She's obviously stressed, but you know, maybe a really loud noise. You know? If she had a gun, don't know if she did, maybe that's where you use a gun to just 
shoot a gun and the bear would run away. Or in that case, a bomb. She could just drop a bomb. Why are you here? You're supposed to be asleep. (laughs) You're supposed to be asleep. Hey, bear, did you not know it's sleepy time? Why aren't you hibernating? Holy cow. (sighs) Now, this is a perfect example of where if we just let nature be nature... Mary would be dead because if you're going to talk to a bear that way, by the way, the bear destroyed the kayak. Please stop breaking my thing. (laughs) She's very nice. Please stop breaking my things. Oh, wow. She ended up, the bear left, I think to probably go hibernate because he didn't know. What she doesn't know is there's like no bear deadline to hibernate. You know, when it's just ready, it's just going to go. She's like, I You're thought. supposed to be asleep. Yeah. Well, she had to then, she tried to call down. There's a sailboat out there in the, in the bay and she tried to get a hold of the people on the sailboat, but she, they couldn't, she couldn't get a hold of them. So she had to swim in the cold water out to the sailboat. Oh, Oh, it's just so funny. This is why, you know, you know, people laugh about all these hunters and the fishermen and all these outdoorsmen that have guns. But that would have been a good time to have a gun, not to shoot the bear. You don't need to kill the bear. Just fire the gun and scare the bear away. You could just scream. And she notice what she used. Questions? Why are you eating my thing? What if the bear just what said... What am I going to do? What, what you're going to do, lady? What if the bear just stood up and put his hands on his hips and like, okay, what I want you to do is shut your cake hole. You're making too much noise and you're stressing me out. That's, that's just funny. That's just funny. It's such a contrast... It just seems like she's a city slicker. Please stop! Please, wild animal. I think she's talking to you, Matt. Is she is she talking to me? Yeah. Am I beating this dead horse? Please stop. Can't you just see like a mountain lion rawr, ripping? Please, why are you doing this? You're going to ruin my shirt. Gosh darn it! Oh, <laughs> why are you doing that? Oh, I bet you she's such a lovely woman. She really is. I'm sure she's the she's the kind of woman. By the way, she's videotaping the whole thing. And she, you can see the bear walk up to her and she's like, I'm going to spray you with pepper spray. Like it's a warning. You kids. I'm going to get you. Anyway, she sprays the bear. She's lucky to be alive. She reminds me of you, Ben. Lovely person. That time when the raccoon came in? Yeah. Silly raccoon grabbing on my neck, sticking your teeth. (laughs) Anyway, great, uh, great lessons for all of us. There's a time to be nice. There's a time to like 
plead, and she used orders. Stop that. She used questions. She said, please and thank you. She would have said, gosh, instead of swearing. I totally appreciate that. There's just a point that it wasn't working. He thrashed your kayak. Make a noise. Scare the thing. Just scare it. Throw a rock at it. I didn't want to hurt it. Of course you didn't. You're just lucky to be alive. Hope we've all learned a lesson today. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're, they're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, and... It's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits, okay? And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Isn't that interesting? One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? Like they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So, a single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start 
taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs, and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern, doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, have we got a, a great opportunity for you today. Um, it's it's an incredibly sad story that's happening all over the world. And uh, some, some good friends of the show, good friends of, I think, really, humanity uh, have, have taken it upon themselves to fight um, the sex trafficking trade. And we've talked about them on the show before uh, Tim Ballard is joining us. He's the founder and the CEO of um, of an organization that is designed and created to stop sex trafficking. It's 21st century slavery, folks, and they've just come out with a new movie called The Abolitionist and uh, Abolitionist. Sorry, and um, the movie was put together by Tim Ballard, who's the founder and CEO of uh, the abolitionists. What's the name of the organization? Underground. Operation Underground Railroad. Operation Underground Railroad. And Tim is the the head of Operation Underground Railroad. And joining us also is Jerry Mullen, that uh, you have probably seen a lot of Jerry's work. He's a producer of the documentary, The Abolitionists. And um, he's also uh, put out some other movies, some critical of Barack Obama in 2016, but some of his more popular ones that you may have heard of are The Minority Report, Jurassic Park, Hello, and Schindler's List, for which he won an Oscar for Best Picture. And uh, he's, um, by the way, did you really cut your teeth on the Escape to Witch Mountain, Jerry? Early, early than that, that. Earlier than that, but that was one of my favorite, scariest movies ever growing up. That was a great movie. You, a freak, you freaked me out, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You too, Tim. Thanks again for being back. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tim's got a really interesting background. Special agent for Homeland Security. He was a former CIA operative. Uh, He's a dad. He's written a great book on Abraham Lincoln that I have people talk to me about all the time. (laughs) And I know his family, and some of them are a little crazy. That's right. Which is why, <laughs> Tim, I understand, which is hopefully they're listening. Um, you're, you're, uh, anyway, I won't get into it. But uh, really, it's good to have you guys here. Talk to me about this movie, The Abolitionist. Well, The Abolitionist is it's, uh, it's a film that's it's reality. I mean, it's, it's real cameras. It's interesting. We have a lot of people um, <clears throat> accuse us 
uh, of falsifying footage because they don't believe that they're actually seeing what they're seeing. Yeah. Um, but it is all real. I mean, we have uh, the, the production company. The, the you know they went undercover with us. The the the, the directors, the producers, the cameramen into into the sex trade. Into the sex trade. They let they 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 followed my team right in there as we infiltrate to to um, to liberate children. And the way to do it is you go in and you you buy these kids. Um, and then working with the police, we always work with the police in, in the countries that we're working in. And my team were former Navy SEALs, former CIA, uh, former law enforcement. And you're literally watching just two, two, feet, in, two feet in front of you. You're watching bad guys sell children. Oh, I remember we've had you on the show a couple times just talking about it and how how really overwhelming it is. And you you leave your home with your beautiful family. <laughs> Get on an airplane and then take a team to go in and you end up in some country and they're literally selling young women into slavery. That's right. And then you have to break it up with some bad dudes and some just regular looking dudes Yeah, that are buying people to use them. Yeah, what's sad is we have a lot of um, Americans who travel into developing nations um, take advantage of the situation there where there's, there's not a strong law enforcement system. And, and they're the ones who are abusing these children. Mm. And so that's why we can infiltrate the market because we can play the role of those Americans that the traffickers are used to supplying. Yeah. And so we get right in there and, and we, 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 again, we work with law enforcement always. We're not a vigilante group. We're signed up official with these governments. You're trying to shut it down. That's right. And so you have Operation Underground, which is your organization, that is trying to raise money to go in and, and really buy more people out of it and shut more systems down. That's right. And which is a charity. Yes. And it's it's taken off. It's all over the country. And um, then Jerry, how do you get involved? I mean, this this is this does make good. I mean, ugly TV. Yeah. Well, it, there's a question that always comes out when people see the film, and that's usually. They asked the question, what can I do? Yeah. And, and more or less, that's the way it was with me after talking to Tim and, and learning about him and what, what he was doing. You know, what can I do? And uh, I talked to the two producers, the two directors, uh, Chet Thomas and Darren Fletcher, and I said, uh, you know, what can we do? How can I help? And that's, you know, kind of how I got involved. I'm more, more on the, uh, uh, the outside looking in, yeah. helping where I can. But it, it's ugly, though, too, isn't it? It's so ugly that, but we you got to do something by getting it out there. You got to tell people the story. Yeah, it is ugly, but but it's also and people sometimes fear going to the film because they think I don't want to be exposed no, to this. Yeah. But it, actually, the opposite happens when when people leave that theater, they're inspired, they're enlightened. That's what I found. They're empowered. They because they, they see that there's light. Yes, this is a real thing, but there's a, there's light at the end of this tunnel. When when Jerry, one of our first conversations he had, because I was very apprehensive about bringing cameras sure. undercover. That's kind of counterintuitive to an operator mindset. Um, but when when he made this case to me, and he, and he talked about how. The Schindler's List had created such a movement. It was more than a movie. It became a movement. Right. However, it, it was too late to rescue those lives. Uh, imagine if Schindler's List could have come out in 1941. Oh, I mean, wow. We, millions would have been rescued. Yeah. Um, people wouldn't have stood for it. They would, they would have made a change. And here's an opportunity to, to make a film while there's still time to rescue the victims we're talking about. And that was sold after yeah. that because it's, that's what we see happening. When people go to this movie, they come out asking the same question that Jerry asked right. when he heard about what we were doing. What can I do? 
And we're watching tens of thousands of people get on board, finding out what they can do and helping solve this problem. Because there is there's stuff you can do. Absolutely. And um, I, I saw it with my own family when they all came out. It it blew my mind that they were it, they were there's this reverence like okay, this is happening in the world and yeah, like you said, they're motivated. They're motivated to do something. Yes. It's. It's an it's an interesting story too, and I have other friends that uh, I think were on the editing crew or the videography. I can't remember, but just as they would tell me as they were shooting, the day to day moments of just awe, where they can't believe how good it feels to free these people. I mean, you had always told us the stories, and I I always thought how cool to see it. But what's it like for your crew, for the staff as you were filming this? You've been in on a million of these. But when you bring in a bunch of videographers who probably haven't seen stuff like this going down, what was it like for them? You know, I think that they were um, very apprehensive at first. They didn't know what to, what to expect. What, you know, they didn't know what the story was going to be. You know, the, these guys are used to making narratives and they know the story. Yeah. And they're just like, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't know what the story's going to be, but we just have to make sure we're there. And they are extremely brave. I mean, a lot of them uh, actually um, went, you know, went undercover uh, and, and they didn't, you know, at first they kind of gave us cameras, but they didn't like the angles we, that <laughs> we were coming no back clue. with. Right. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so they said, you know, what? we got to be the ones that go undercover. So I was like, all right, if you need that shot, come, come on in. It was great for us because we were using the footage for, for evidence. Yeah. We'd turn over to the prosecutors. Oh, that's perfect. Huh? Oh yeah. So there's, I mean, none of the kids that we've rescued have had to even testify in, in any kind of trial, which is a horrible thing to make them do anyway. Right. Uh, because there's no reason to. You have, we have the entire deal being shot from 17 angles. Right. You know, so, um, uh, so yeah, in fact, one of, one, one of the guys, who, one of the directors who went undercover is right, is sitting right here. Really? Yeah. And he's, Did in, you? he's, he's in studio today. So give us your name again. And hit the button right there. Yep, there we go. What was your What's your name? Chet Thomas. Chet, uh, just Thank a director. You. Chet didn't know he was going to get thrown into this. You're a director, just not used to going in on this kind of stuff. I'm assuming. No, but um, it, yeah, originally it was it was an interesting opportunity, I guess, if you call it that. But uh, um, going in and going undercover, it was it's been pretty mind- exhilarating, pretty mind blowing. And I, I, you know, hey, you know. Tim can say this, but I think I'm I'm pretty good at the undercover stuff. Don't yeah. you think, Tim? He's gotten a lot better. Did he? Did he? What do you? Yeah. I've gotten a lot better. Yeah. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Did yeah, Chet so. improve the camera <laughs> angles though? Chet, did you get a better shot when you went in? Uh, I think absolutely. so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It's uh, it's a weird story because tell us the numbers, um, Tim, about slavery and and how many. What are what are we looking at? Oh, it is. This is it's, and that's the thing that's that's the most frustrating part to me is that people don't realize how how enormous it is. Yeah. And so it's easy for them to sit back and say, "Well, the governments of the world have this; they got it." And, and no, no slam on the governments. This problem is just so enormous. There are more slaves living today than ever lived before in the history of the earth. In fact, oh. if if you add it up, and these yeah. stats are absolutely correct, if you added up all the slaves that that, that lived. During the 350 plus years of the transatlantic slave trade, add them all up, and there's still more living today in the world. Over 30 million people enslaved. Our organization really focuses on the 2 million, or actually 5 million, who are child slaves, hmm. whether it's sex trafficking or slave labor. We mostly focus on the sex trafficking. But that's how enormous this problem is. I mean, there, there are, and if you think about this, it's really scary. If you think about the fact that there's 2 million children forced into the commercial sex trade. 
you got to ask yourself, what kind of demand justifies that number? Oh. How many people want this? Right. So many. Millions of people are sex addicts, largely because, I think, because of the pornified world we live in. Right. And, and, and this is what they're looking for, and they go for this. And, and that's why these kids are being exploited. So one of the benefits of having a movie like this is, I guess, telling the story to the healthier and maybe, what, educating others of what, the the possibilities are or what a pornified air quotes world looks like because we, we we clean it up right we clean it up in the u.s so it doesn't look this dirty and raunchy right but it's all in the u.s it's, it's all, here it's all here it's, it's all exactly it's, it's mostly here. online yeah. in fact our organization has a very aggressive uh, software development program uh, we partnered recently with um with the university of north carolina we have um an office there a lab and we're building tools because here in the united states it's just happening online in the dark net yeah child pornography yeah. kids being sold uh, but it is pervasive it's everywhere and it's there's just that many sex addicts in the world so yeah jerry uh as a producer as a big hollywood producer um with a lot of amazing shows under your belt what what stood out the most for you as you watched what they had done and you you saw what they were putting together well, this is inspiring. It really is because, number one, you know you're doing something that's righteous. Yeah. If you use Sinner's List, for example, uh, yeah, we told that story. We told it 55 years too late Yeah. because it had already happened. If we played the same application here and looked back on this 55 years later, oh. the numbers that Tim are talking about, the 30 million uh, in slavery or the 2 million to 5 million kids, would probably be double or triple that. So at least this way, with the work that Tim and these guys are doing, getting in there, shining some light on it, getting it out with Chet and, and his team, getting the, getting on film. The thing that's, that's interesting about this, we have to remember, uh, I think, is the fact that there's no reenactments here. This is real-time This live. is it. What you're seeing is what you get. Yeah. That's it. It's happening. And people sit in the theater there, and they can just imagine for themselves that just for a, yeah. a, a, a a little different saved, they could be there themselves. Because when we watched Schindler's List, we saw the horror, but it was all acting. This was the horror real time. That's right. Correct. That's amazing. No, absolutely. What a neat thing to, I mean, be taking on. This is a big bite. You took, I mean, you're talking a 30 million person trade and you're, you're taking on a small portion of it, 2 million. But that's two million lives. Those that's two million souls. Right. And, and what our what our plan of attack? An amazing thing. In fact, it's it's in the film. It's my favorite scene in the film. It's one of the, the very end towards the end. And uh, um, I'm talking. I'm I'm back in Cartagena. We had just done a series of operations, and I'm back in Cartagena, and w- with different faces, American faces around me, and we're talking to the street vendors, who generally are the ones who seventy eighty percent of the time will introduce us to the child traffickers. Okay. And so we're going around, uh, and everyone is saying to us, these, these vendors, are you crazy? Don't we, we, you cannot do that to kids here. Haven't you been watching the press? These Americans went to jail. No, you know, him not knowing, these guys not knowing who they're talking to. <laughs> and we're acting kind of surprised, like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, don't, don't, don't get involved. And that's when it kind of hit us, that we've just rescued kids who never knew they needed rescuing. They and they never it. will know. Oh. And that's, that's, that felt the best. Right, uh, because we and you know we put away OUR our organizations put away um, over 180 traffickers. Wow! Um, in in the last couple of years, how many kids will not be affected now? Uh, the deterrent effect, right? I mean, we shut down child trafficking in Cartagena at least for a period. 
Um, the key is to go back and hit it again and get the press involved again. Keep talking about it. Keep hitting. Keep talking about it until, you know, the barriers for entry into that black market are just too high. Yeah. And people stop. Until no one wants to, yeah, mess with it. Wow. Interesting stuff. Again, we're speaking with um, Tim Ballard, who's the founder and CEO of um, Operation Underground, and also Jerry Mullen, uh, who just is a, an incredible producer, and um, I, I like to just call him a big Hollywood star, Jerry. You're an Academy Award winning producer for crying out loud. He won't Schindler's bring his Oscar. List. I ask him every time to bring the Oscar. Bring the Oscar, he won't bring man. It. It's too heavy. <laughs> and we appreciate Kurt. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back, continue to discuss um, this, this horrendous thing that's going on in the world, folks. But uh, you need to go to rescue2m.com. Rescue2m.com is a website. You got to go see this movie. It'll be out uh, this weekend and it'll be coming around the country to a to a theater near you so please make sure that you go look up rescue2m.com and also cinemark and megaplex theaters we'll take a break folks this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back welcome back friends to the matt townsend show that is the music from the movie um the abolitionist and um, folks, there's a real problem in the world, and uh, the problem is uh, 21st century slavery and sex trafficking of children. 30 million people are currently living as slaves, and two million of those are kids in sex trafficking um, situations or being trafficked as as just objects. And so we've asked. Uh, some incredible people. Tim Ballard is joining us. He is the founder and CEO of Operation Underground, which is an organization that is that goes in. They they're stormtroopers. They go in and just storm these places and throw the criminals in jail and try to upset the apple cart. Meanwhile, saving the lives of a lot of children. And they've put together the movie and also part of the movie. Jared uh, or Jerry Mullen is joining us. Who again? Um, what an incredible background he has. He's been the producer of uh, films, classic films like Min- Minority Report, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, where he won an Oscar for Best Picture. He also um, has been the producer over this show as well. So we're honored to have Jerry here. And also Chet Thomas is the director of the film who went in and made the pictures. The cool thing about this movie, as I'm hearing about it, um, is my family went to see it on the preview the day I was going to review it. I couldn't go, but... My family saw it, and when they came home, they were changed. And I think that's the purpose of the movie is – and my kids, I had younger I had younger kids-ish go. Um, but this is a PG-13 movie. This isn't something people should be afraid to see. This is it's – a, it's a harsh topic, but it's a real topic. And when you leave, you leave motivated to change lives. Is that right? Is that the goal, Tim? That's, that's exactly the goal. I mean – and I've been so – Encouraged by seeing people watch watch out. I've literally watched thousands of people watch it. Yeah, and I watch them come out, and they just say, "What can I do? I got to get on board. How can I do something?" That's it, huh? And that's what we need. These kids deserve that, and that's what we need. And so, the more people that get into these theaters, and this is important. It's a numbers game here. If we don't do well right now, other theaters won't pick it up later. So right. we have to do well right now because really, kids are at stake here. I don't. That's right. No, I, yeah. it, it truly is because I know what happens when people see it. I get we get more troops 
more yeah. stormtroopers right. on, the, on, the, on the ground. So. And you can open it up. So part of that, Chet, is so we've got to get people in theaters this weekend in Utah. Right. And then if it does well in Utah, it'll roll out to other states. Yeah, it'll get pulled into other states. If we can – what the term is per screen average, if we can sell these theaters out that we have in the Cinemarks and the Larry H. Miller theaters, then others that are watching the numbers will say, well, what is this movie? They'll recognize it and say, no – they, they all feel like they're missing out on something. Yeah. If we can create that scarcity mentality, then they'll pull it in, and then it just catches fire and goes and, and goes. And, and like you were saying before, you know, our our biggest fans are are against this cause are are women, moms, and moms, yeah. and, and and they're often the ones that feel like they're scared to go see this movie, and they just when they come out of the movie, the moms are like, "I'm so glad I went," and yeah. now I'm going to bring my 13 year old daughter. Or my son that's to the, make sure they get the message. That's the first thing my wife said is, oh, yeah, you're going to have to have them on your show because that <laughs> is – it's incredible. And it really um, – it's – it's again, we don't want to scare anyone away from it. In fact, there this is about education, right, getting right. people involved. And talk about um, – I know you've you've gone to a bunch of different areas. Haiti was one. I know some of them were in Asia as well, if I recall last time. Yeah, we've time been around. in we've been in close to fifteen different countries. That's all, right, Cartagena and other yeah. places. Yeah. So give us just maybe Chet walk through a scenario, maybe like the Haitian scenario. Sure. What What does the average scene look like? Well, uh, I mean, the scene that comes to mind it, it is really interesting. As we're following the team from Operation Underground Railroad, we in Haiti we are going after a, a little boy that had been kidnapped. His name's Gardy. And, um, and and Tim's team had infiltrated an orphanage. We had taken down you – know, they sold us you know, a couple of kids, and we had taken down these two individuals. And, and the scene that comes to mind is you – know, remember, Tim, when we were sitting in that room, and they were interrogating her essentially in the other room. And it was, it was like a Final Four game – I mean, you know, N- NBA yeah. game – for a um, life. Yeah, live. And it was going back and forth, and the translator was translating. Uh, the, the, it was hot. I mean, it was Haiti. We were all <laughs> sweating. The light above was going, zzz, you know, and it just creates this. I mean, it was just this energy Incredible. in the room that was going back and forth and seeing if she was going to say anything about Gardy and what was going on. Tim sends in Dutch. Who's you know the hammer and he's going to try and get it out of her and, and I mean it was just and going the film back picks and up the energy by oh, the way it, man, it picks up that whole cool. all that stuff and you're just That's watching it. this and, and and you're right there I mean the cameras are in in the faces and it it really brings you into the moment of what's going on. And, and it's real. It's and real. That's, that's the point, huh, Jerry? Is it's that, real. It, this isn't that. Hollywood. This is real life. I mean, this is crazy because it, it's it has all the aspects of Hollywood. Even the yeah. buzzing light, yeah, oh, yeah, which you'd see in a Bond movie or whatever, and yet in the end, it's real time saving kids' lives. Yeah, that's power. Well, and it's and and if you follow that story through, you know, it's taking those kids that we rescued, getting them into we, you know, Tim shut down the whole orphanage and pulled all those kids. That was a 27, 20, 28. 28 kids, yeah. put them into a, a, a an orphanage. To get wow. rehabilitation and, and really focusing on that, yeah. to making sure, you know, we don't just save them and, yeah, and leave them back. The organization the... doesn't, but they really make sure that they're. So Tim, talk about over. this. So when you pulled twenty three, I mean, what is that like? Loading twenty three kids in buses as you drive away from their 
Well, it's you know, it's captivity. There's, there's nothing like it. This this job is bittersweet, and this is that's the sweet part where you yeah. look at these kids and think they have a chance. No, oh, they're not for sale anymore. Right. And um, it's it's you know, t- two of the kids um, changed my life to the point that something special. The Haiti case is, you know, we've done this many times, but two of the kids actually. Um, it was I, the two that you that we the bought. two that we actually bought that you see in the film right there. Um, we're actually, my wife and I were actually adopting those two Are you children. Really? Yeah, it, it was, again, it was an interesting thing because I've been in this situation before and didn't feel this way, but with these kids, it was something that was different. And I thought, yeah. this is not enough. Just to get them into a place where they're not being sold, it's not enough. Right. And, and, um, and, uh, one of my board members, Mark Stott, is, is, uh, uh involved in doing the same thing, bringing, bringing some of the kids yeah. home. And, and so, uh, yeah, it was life changing for me in more than one way. For that's sure, that's amazing. And uh, Jerry, um, you've seen a whole other side of this too. Like people go see the movie, they hear stories like this, and then out of nowhere, they just do what they can. You were telling a story about Arda, uh, Arda Mullen, um, who's just making dresses because she can. She saw the film, and she was, as we talked about, she was inspired, wanted to do something uh, to help. So she just started making dresses. Called and told me she had 50 at one point. By the time we got them picked up, I think she had 70. And this is a woman who was recuperating from a, an accident she had up here on I-15. But it's just the fact that people want to do something. Yeah, that's the, the key, huh? The question always is, what can I do? We, we want people to, to call their friends, to, get, to use their social media. Let people know. If they've got See this people, movie. Pass this movie around. Send it on. Share it. Exactly. The more people that understand it, the more people that see it, then the more people for us, yeah. we're going to end up in the, in the end having guys if, like Tim here rescue. If you see it, review it. I mean, give your yeah. opinions. What do Talk you think about, about it. it? Talk about it. And really, it's the whole goal right now is you need people in seats in theaters so that they think it's worth sending out nationwide. And then mm-hmm. once they do it nationwide – then I mean, then I guess people could also go to um, Operation Underground because you can also donate time or money or resources or dresses or there's some other way to help. Absolutely, you can visit us at ourrescue.org and uh, learn all about how we're continuing continuing the fight. Man, and, and you can don- you can donate there and you can see what everybody's doing to to fight if, this. If cause. it's not if it's not in your community, ask for it. Yeah, yeah. De- demand it. Go tell your it, the it's time theater to folks. stop the madness. Email yeah. the corporate. I mean, really, yeah. it's because again, this this is we can do something. This isn't fifty, sixty years after um, when we're making this movie. We're doing it real time. And two, I guess, like you were saying, Tim, you're changing. I mean, these are souls, right? These are beings, right? And you can't. I mean, humans are using humans. Yeah. It's, and it's, somebody needs to step in. And you'd think right. they wouldn't have to come from here, but that's you're being called. D- does everybody feel called to this then? I mean, because it's kind of a disparate group. It's a different group that you've thrown together. And yet every time I talk to Tim, I just find more and more people are being called into saying something. Well, it's strange because we have church one day a week and we have six days a week for this. Yeah. It's interesting. What if we could dedicate the same spirit the other six days? You got it. Save lives. People, as soon as people understand the cause or they cross Operation Underground Railroad, they see the movie, they all want to do something, you know, and 
everybody just needs to look at their talents. What are you know? Hey, if you don't have any talents, then you donate. Right. To Operation Underground Railroad, or use your social or media. If you, if you can, yeah, use your social media. If you can sing, sing a song. If you paint, paint. Whatever you can do, you know what you can do. That's right. And the neat thing, I mean, this isn't a charity where anybody's getting rich. This is a charity where you're just being enriched by seeing lives saved. That's right. That's pretty powerful. It is. Tim, you started this so long ago. Again, you wrote a great book, an incredible book on um, on Lincoln. Would you ever have thought it would get here? No, no, not not at all. I, I, I can't. And it's because people. It's because of what we're talking about. It's because people f- get called. I didn't realize how many people would feel called, uh, and tell me a story that sounded very familiar to my own story. Yeah. And and that's how this thing has 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 grown. You know. And, and it can and like I found out about it from Holly Olson, a mommy, just a cute little mommy that just won't shut her flapper. <laughs> and she just keeps proselyting about how important this is. So moms don't need to be afraid of this. Moms can step up and get your kids to at least see it and start the conversation and then share it. Social media, then go to a bunch of websites. One uh, for sure to go to is um, rescue2m.com. And also, if you want to go to the movie's website, because if you're in another state, not Utah, that's going to be seeing the movie or have the chance to see the movie, go to theabolitionistmovie.com to learn more about the movie. But it'll be coming. It'll be coming as long as we do our job in the next few weeks. Yeah, and if you want to be a part of donating or whatever, then you go to the operation OURrescue.org. OURrescue.org to donate and to get involved any way you can. Well, we appreciate all of you. Again, um, we appreciate Tim Ballard. Thanks for being here. And uh, Jerry Mullen also thanks. Chet Thomas, thanks for being here. Everybody, thank you for getting it to our attention. Get out there and uh, let's save some lives, folks. Um, It's sad. It's sad that it has to be people using people. But then why not? And it could also be people saving people. You go be part of that group. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, find the good in the world. And we just found it at uh, the abolitionistsmovie.com. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, such a such an interesting discussion about slavery in today's day and age. Are you kidding me? 30 million people enslaved across the world. And uh, the work that they're doing, to Tim, are, and, and they're doing, it's, it's amazing to me. I saw how the whole thing started because I think we had Tim on right after he, he got into this. And... Um, it's it's just growing and growing now to the point that they have a movie. But I think it teaches us all a really important lesson. And um, the basics of the lesson are the hero is simply dedicating yourself to something that's important, something that's bigger than you. When we look at Tim and Ballard and his group and, and Operation Underground and all that they're doing – you can't watch the movie. You can't see some of the experiences they're having and not want to help. And the idea of a hero is that very thing. And you don't – it's not that you have to go get involved in this charity or this case. There's a million things that each of us could maybe feel called to do or step up to do. 
but there are people that are hurting. And one of the reasons I want to do this show is to make sure that we highlight what you can do. Instead of us all getting caught up and just bemoaning and complaining about how horrible the world is, the world remains horrible until we step up and decide to do something different about it, which is um, something you can do. So whatever it is in the world that's perplexing to you, that you don't understand, or wherever it is that you find the light that brings joy and goodness to the world, can I just challenge you as a listener, as a friend of the show, will you go keep delivering on that light? When we start bringing light to a dark world, we change the world, right? And that's all I think you're seeing here with uh, Operation Underground and and a lot of just the heroic stuff that you see. We always try to highlight a hero story on the show. A lot of them are just kind of last-minute decisions where we've got to stick to something and, and go make something happen. But heroes don't have to be um, – they don't have to be, you know, fly in with special forces to go in and break down the doors of somebody to save slaves. Uh, they can just be a mom who's out working at minimum wage and doing what she can to raise her family. A hero can also be, you know, the dad that uh, is working two jobs to support the family. It, it could be a divorced couple where the mom and the dad are doing everything they can to be involved in their children's lives. It could be a teacher that feels called to be an educator and a teacher, even though they could make more money somewhere else. It could be any one of us, right? And so find a way to go get the light. And wherever you see it, remember, there's goodness everywhere. And uh, that goodness, it's also carried with all of us. I can imagine that when they go to these places where they'll they end up stopping a slave trade in action that there's this incredible moment but a lot of these kids don't know any better in their life this is all they've known until they get carried away and they spend some time and they're rehabbed and they start to see a new light and that new light is a reflection of people like Tim Ballard and those people at uh, OurRescue.org or um, Rescue2M.com, just some sites you can go see. Anyway, folks, look for the heroes. Go be the hero. And again, find it in your heart to bring more light. And when you bring the light, guess what happens? When you bring the light, it it impacts the darkness. The darkness can't be there if there's light. That's, uh, that's it. That's the hour. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, continue. Uh, helping us see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There's a YouTube video of a, of a, a sister um, and, a, and some brothers. Um, everybody has seen, you know, when you get your wisdom teeth out, they pull your teeth and then they drug, you're all drugged up. And then a lot of people have been making vi- videos about, you know, how out of control you are or the dumb things you say when you're under the influence of the medication after surgery, right? So this, these two brothers uh, have basically – they picked their sister up and for some reason mom and dad are like, yeah, do this. This is a great idea because they seem to have been involved. And they put this elaborate scheme together that once the sister was all drugged up and they were bringing her home, they, they had this basically scheme where on the radio an emergency alert comes up that basically says 
um, that that there's basically a zombie apocalypse, that there's a virus that's spreading. And um, this woman is under drugs. And her. Uh, so let me just play some of the clips for you. This is crazy. Um, this is the uh, emergency alert system. The Center for Disease Control in Washington, D.C. has issued a viral outbreak warning. State and local officials have reported cases of high fever, nausea, death, and even cannibalism. Stay in place until further notice. So, what the heck? Did you? Hold on, hold on, mom's calling. So, the girl's, her mouth is packed with gauze. And she's like, you're driving like a slug, get to the house. She's mad. She's, you know, she's post-surgery, high on drugs, angry. And the brothers, um, but they, they they had this elaborate thing playing. So all of a sudden she buys into the fact that there's a zombie apocalypse. But then we get home and they're trying to fill the car up with stuff. And you got to ask questions, right? You got to find out, like, what do we keep? What do we not keep? Listen um, to uh, the next clip about uh, this is about which animal, which pet we keep. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The cat! You okay. idiot! Okay. No! What do we do with the dog? He's the worst! He's already dying! Just leave him! Okay, Get we will, the okay, cat! Okay, I'll get the cat. Baby. Mom said we're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Um. <laughs> so you have to choose between the dog and the cat. She's like, the cat, you idiot. Duh, the dog's already dying. <laughs> and um, the next one is about what what chocolate cake we should take. Milson, we can only take Fun Betty or chocolate cake. Which one it's do we take? Fun Betty. Do you want Fun Betty or chocolate? Which? No, Millicent, This is important. This will be what we're living off of. Which one? Fun Betty chocolate. <laughs> why? Why she's yelling? Why does it matter? They're zombies. No, this is important, important, Millicent. Funfetti or chocolate? Um, and then they got to go to Mexico, right? Because dad, I guess, is on a trip in, in Las Vegas, and th- they got to get to Mexico, dad says. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico, and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I, I, I can say pants. <laughs> I can say, I can say pants. So this poor girl, <laughs> she's sitting in the car the whole time, and the brothers are running around. That's why they're out of breath. At one point, they're loading gardening equipment they're in the back, gardening. and she goes, what do we need a garden hoe for? Yeah. Get the guns. What are we doing? They hand her a supposed weapon with a trigger, but it's really one of those extension bars for seniors that help them get their cereal off the top shelf. Yeah. The little grabber bar. Like, Here's the safety, and here you... So then they then they're like so Millicent we about Costco they got to go to Costco should we go to Costco listen to her reply Do you think Costco should we go to Costco first No it's gonna be a bloodbath in there <laughs> She's probably right she's probably right Should we go to Costco No it's gonna be a bloodbath in there They filmed the entire thing so we're gonna post it on our at uh, Doctor Matt Show Twitter feed and you gotta you gotta look it up It is it's funny. It's funny. It's brother, sister gone awry. That that line um, about the cat. Did you see how she knew exactly which one she keeps? Oh yeah. Like there wasn't even a break. <laughs> she hates the dog. The cat. The dog is dying. <laughs> We're going with the cat. Um, but then it was so. Even though they, it was like, it was a pretty extensive 
game they played on their sister. They saved her because right when they told her. Yeah, at the end they're like, uh, it's a joke. We're going to go home now. She got this look in her eye. And you, it was like that moment where you know she's either going to lose it, start crying, or freak out and start hurting somebody and they turn the video off. I think it'll be worse when she's, you know, I think it was worse when she came out of the drug haze that yeah. she was in. When she realized what was there and she saw the video, she'd probably go nuts. I know. I'm dying to know what she felt about that. But who, what brother hasn't loved to play a trick like that on their sister? They would, we'd all like to do that. Did you ever have a family member tease sure. you? At some point. I mean, we had my brother convinced he was adopted. That's that's a common one. <laughs> well, that's an easy one. Everyone he does, does that one. My sister and I look like my father's side of the family. Yeah. My brother looks like my mother's side of the family. So it was an easy easy was uh, adopted story to to buy. That's dramatic. That's poor. That's sad it's, for him. It's fine. He's 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 grown out of it. My sisters used to just say, "Hey, touch the lighter." So. <laughs> Back in the day, cars had lighters that you'd push in, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they'd stick, and then you pull them out, and then there's these orange coils that are just glowing steaming. hot. Yeah, yeah. Glowing I used hot. to play with that all the time. And that one of my sisters was like, "Touch it." And now that's that's your electrical port. Yeah, exactly. Now that's just where we plug our our tools and our devices in. So things have changed. I mean, I'd probably rather have a zombie apocalypse threat than have somebody tell me to touch a fiery coil of lava. Right. Just saying. I used to sit in the car and burn stuff on it. Did you? Yeah, like we had paper in the, you know, just in the, in the glove compartment. You're yeah. like, Shh, and then toss it out the window. <laughs> Those were the days. Again, back in the days when we didn't care about kids. We didn't buckle them in. We didn't just have seats. Slide around the back seat. Yeah. It's fine. Don't worry about this it. This is great, Dad. Do you remember when you got in the car and the seat belts were scalding hot? My first car seat as a kid was made out of uh, foam, but most of the foam was gone, so it was just metal and, like, duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> and look how you turned out. It's great. You're fine. Interesting stuff, folks. Man, have have we changed technology, bringing families closer together. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We could make up whatever story you need to make up to get over the wall. The problem is it's your wall. Some of us, instead of getting over the wall, we just you know build a really nice lattice that we secure to the wall, and then we create really nice, you know, shrubs around the wall. We paint the wall. We maybe draw a really nice painting and picture on it so we can enjoy the wall more. Maybe you just ought to get over the wall. Now, believe me, there's many things I just have trouble getting over. And yet, as I listen to Jason, you're like, well, duh, make a list. And doesn't does it not make sense to make the list and make it detailed? If if on the list I today put, write the first chapter of my book. I have four books that are in my head. I've even white papered them. That's how, that's how far I've gotten is I've actually written complete outlines on four different books. <laughs> Haven't written them yet. I've written one book. And the problem is that book, that wall shredded me. <laughs> so I am like, I am never going to go write another book. But I... Have some great white papers if you want to read them. But then I have this thing in my head and my heart that keeps saying, hey, Matt, you got to write this book where I'll go do a speech and they'll all say, tell us more about that body, mind, spirit idea. Well, it's going to be in my upcoming book. When will that be out? At this rate, 2060, if we're lucky. 
I mean, I got this wall. I've got to get over it. And I'm you. You're me. We're the same people. We've all got something. But make the list. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And then be willing to just toss the list tonight. Okay, I'm done. Didn't get it all done. But I did get my computer set up, and I did uh, tighten up that the white paper on my book. I, t- I, t- I tightened up my outline. Great. Tomorrow, let's just start writing it. Okay, what do I need to do to write it? Make some time, create the space, sit down, lock my door to my office, offend everyone in the office so they don't come near me. Make the list. And take a break. Um, How essential is the break idea? Now, some of us just maybe take too many breaks, like watching Netflix. Terry, on the other hand, just watches... Marvel comics, DC comics, and trailers for all the shows coming out. There's more to life than that. It, it, take the break, whatever break you need. It doesn't matter. Just take it. What am I supposed to do, Matt? What am I supposed to do when my husband, that's all he does is take breaks. Well, let's see. Let's look at our options. Uh, complain. Um, ignore. Avoid. Talk about him. Uh, make him pay for it. Or you could relate. You could talk. You could communicate. Well, I do, but every time I talk to him about it, he gets mad. Okay? That's common. Uh, every time I have projects that my wife needs done and I don't do them, and then she brings it up, like, are you going to do the yard soon? Oh. Who I'm usually mad at, by the way, when I get mad at you for bringing up the projects I need to do. I'm really mad at myself, aren't I? I'm mad at me. And yet I, I blame you. It's, it's a neat thing we do. But I'm mad because you're telling me something I know I should be doing. And yet I'm, I'm caught on the wall. Or I'm watching Netflix on the other side of the wall. And I don't even realize I'm no longer trying to get over the wall. I've just now accommodated the wall. Made excuses about the wall. One of my rules when I teach and work with couples is just do something different. Just do something different. It's If your spouse is going to be mad either way, then maybe just go out and start doing the yard. And he'll come out mad. I guarantee you he'll come out mad. But remember who he's mad at is uh, he's mad at himself. Well, I don't want to make him mad. You're already making him mad by asking him every day. He's already mad when he pulls in the yard and the driveway and he sees that his yard is not as nice as everyone else's grass. It's not cut. It's not green. The yard's a mess. He already feels that way, which might be one of the reasons he gets in the funk. So if talking's not working, then just quietly go start working on it. Oh, well, why should I have to work on it? Because it bothers you. Go work on what bothers you. Well, aren't we just enabling him? Well, then nag him and see how that goes. You got to choose somewhere, right? Nag or we're going to work on it. I mean, remember, it's your life too. And if your wall is your husband not getting over his wall, then do something to get over the wall. Right? Adjust. Oh, it's always up to me. It is. Yeah, it is. As long as it's bothering you, it's always up to you. As long as you want to improve it, it's always up to you. As long as you're the one that wants to change, it's always up to you. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. What do I know? just one of us.
We're all jacked up. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can every day to give us all the tools we need. Not just you. We all need them. I talk from my experience being stuck on the wall. We'll be right back, folks. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. And if, if you've been to the hospital recently or just a clinic or, I mean, there's so many different places. Just in visiting somebody that's in hospice, visiting somebody that's um, in a senior living center or assisted living center, nurses, they're everywhere. They play a vital role in the health care of our country. It's the nurses who make the hourly visits uh, to the hospital rooms that, that are caring and monitoring the patient's. The work accomplished uh, by nurses is often overlooked, and in recent years, the workload has also continued to increase, with the majority of the nursing workforce joining uh, uh, joining the workforce prior to 1970. We are currently facing the largest nursing shortage our nation has seen, at least since the 60s, I believe, in one article I read. This is a big, big deal. Combined with the aging population and the rise of chronic disease and limited capacity in nursing schools, guess what? We may be in the middle, and in fact, I would say we are, based on what I'm reading and our next expert, we're in the middle of a nursing crisis. So joining us today is Dr. Katrina Merrill, Assistant Professor of Nursing at BYU. Dr. Merrill joins us today to tell us more about the shortage and what we can expect to see in the nursing workforce. Dr. Katrina Merrill, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be here. This is, uh, it seems crazy. Nurses, that's that's as big of a deal. I mean, you're a huge part of our medical healthcare world. Yeah, nurses are are the number one in the healthcare profession. Yeah. uh, Make up about 70% of the healthcare professionals. And we're short. We're running out. Yeah, there's about 3 million nurses uh, in the country today. And it's expected that we will lose about a third of those um, because they're aging, you know, um, the baby boomers. And, you know, we talk about the aging population and their medical needs, but they're also aging and going out of the workforce. Right. I mean, I think I read the average age is like 50 for a nurse. Yeah, it's it's between 45 and 50. And, uh, you know, nursing is a very demanding profession as well. I mean, but I also see here on campus, I know we have a great nursing program here, and I see all these 20-year-olds, 22, 23, 24, 25, that would be incredible nurses, but there's just not enough faculty nationwide either to train all these nurses we need. Well, exactly. One of the, the issues is the shortage of faculty and the um, the average age of a faculty member um, getting their doctorate. So to, to be eligible to, to work in a, a nursing program uh, is about uh, 45 or 50. Oh, wow. And so they start out uh, older, and so they don't stay in the education arena as long. And and then we don't have people to teach. So the the shortage goes um, from the bedside, but also to all aspects yeah. of, of the nursing care. So the faculty for nursing care and um, and the nurses themselves. But I guess in the it doesn't make sense to me. It seems like you know there's a demand. So if there's a demand, we'd be able to throw money at it. Is kind of what I feel like our government thinks. Throw some money at it, and then all of a sudden we'll be able to get more nurses. 
but you can't get more nurses because there's not the faculty and you can't get the faculty because there's not enough nurses. Right. Well, and and you also have to look at uh, where people want to work. I mean, you can't make people become faculty members. Right. And you actually take a pay cut to That's become huge. a faculty. Yeah. Uh, it's much more – I mean, if you're looking at it from a money standpoint, yeah. it's much more lucrative to um, to be at the bedside in, in hospitals um, and things like that. So, you know, people need to be motivated to – to change their career path to um, from acute care, let's say. But, you know, there's also that patient aspect. You know, nurses, for the most part, went into nursing because they, they want that compassion and they want that um, contact with patients. The other aspect of the nursing shortage is that nurses are leaving hmm. because of dissatisfaction, because overwork, um, because of the long hours. Um, yeah. And the stress associated with uh, working with people who are ill and, you know, death and dying and all of that. So there's a lot of reasons to – I I read one report, nurses are leaving to become hairdressers. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know. To be relaxed. It's more relaxing. Yeah. uh, You know, and so, I mean – we need to make um, nursing a, a profession where where we take care of those who are caring for us. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you think about it, really. Seventy percent of our our medical experience is going to involve a nurse. That's huge. And yeah. yet we, we almost just take it for granted, right? Like, like, oh, they'll be here. They'll be here. But when the baby boomers are booming and in full bloom and boom – we we may be in trouble because to, it's it's one thing too to just find a nurse and get a nurse in your area in your profession or in your specialty, but then you got to get him, let's say, in North Dakota, right? And you right. got to get him in all of these far reaches of the country, and that in and of itself has got to be hard in a shortage. Well, and you have to realize too that uh, about seventy percent of our nurses are um, are mothers. And so, um, you know, and they may or may not be married, you know, maybe single moms, but they have to, you know, to negotiate that whole thing. too. Yeah. So they may not want to live, um, you know, in a rural setting. And so we have that problem with uh, nurse practitioners and physicians as well. Our rural areas are becoming um, less available to health care, um, which is really um, unfortunate because we have a lot of people in in great need in those rural settings. Yeah, I thought, and I, I was under this impression that with the new healthcare, you know, initiatives that are coming out, that a lot of this would be pushed to nurses. A lot of medical care would be pushed to a nurse practitioner, and which it sounds like a, they are. It sounds like we're actually probably producing more nurse practitioners than ever, and yet that might that that's still not even enough. We still don't have enough. Nurses, just I'm sure, at the basic, at the at the entry level, right? Well, you know, I think the other thing that you realize is that we are ha- we are producing more nurse practitioners than ever, and that's great. Yeah. But where do those come from? Right. They come from from nurses uh, with a baccalaureate degree, mm-hmm. who are in great demand. Um, you know. At that, that level, and so they go on to get a master's or a doctorate and become a nurse practitioner, and it it furthers the shortage issues. Is it is that part of the issue? It seems like um, there, so. There's an associate's degree for nursing, right? And yes. then there's a bachelorate, baccalaureate. What's the associate? Is the associate an RN? Yeah, the associate degree is a, a registered nurse, um, and they're considered the entry level into nursing practice. 
Um, the Institute of Medicine um, created a report, um, The Future of Nursing, in 2010, and they called for an increase of bachelor's prepared nurses uh, to – they wanted 80 percent of the workforce um, to be bachelor's prepared hmm. because the evidence shows that bachelor's prepared nurses um, are more able to look at that big picture and be leaders and there's actually less errors um, when you have um, baccalaureate prepared nurses. Yeah. So enter the workforce but then provide – some means for them to go from that associate degree to that bachelor's degree. Because it, it, it seems like the, the associate's degree would be a great entry level. That so It seems like if you had 50,000 RNs at the associate level, you'd have more bachelor degrees in nursing. So it seems like we should be pushing more associates. But it yeah. almost sounds like we're pushing more Bachelors. Yeah, I think what we're really pushing is that uh, nurses go who are who are at that associate level go back, go back, and, yeah. and continue their education. Nursing is so complex, yeah, and um, and high tech and specialized too. I guess more than ever before. Absolutely, and so it's difficult, um, you know, at a minimum level to take care of these complex patients. You know, the patients in the hospital now. Um, you know, are much sicker than they ever were. Um, the When I first started nursing practice in the 80s, um, the kind of patients that we took care of, um, those are all at home, you know, receiving home care. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you have to be pretty sick to be in a hospital these days. And that's why um, they're pushing for more education. It's a safer place when you have uh, more highly educated people. But then, you know, you have that whole issue of it takes longer yeah. to prepare a nurse um, with a bachelor's degree as well. Right. So I guess in the end, th this is this is a problem that you can't just throw money at because we've created a system that's that's kind of upside down. We don't have faculty. I'm sure the universities would love to put more people through and help. Oh, absolutely. You just can't find the staff. Every year when we uh, admit to the, the BYU program, um, it just breaks my heart. Oh, I bet. It, it is so difficult. And, and often I'll say, you know, oh, I wish we could admit more. But, you know, it's not only the faculty, but it's also the clinical sites. Yeah, that's right. Um, every nurse um, in, in nursing school has to go out, you know, and have that clinical experience. I mean, you know, it's essential. And there are actually so many schools, you know, the associate programs and baccalaureate programs that were competing for sites at the hospitals. The nurses are overworked and they just can't take one more student, yeah. you know. And so it's just – it's this conundrum. It's like, well, we can't, we can't <laughs> increase our students even if we could increase our students. Yeah. Our barrier is really clinical sites. You can't train them faster. There's not enough. And then – it's it's interesting too, and you can't put the burden on the nurses to keep doing more, or they'll quit, and it will create more of the problem. Right, they'll quit, and and also, you know, let's ask work, nurses to work longer hours. Then yeah. they become fatigued, right. and they make errors. Yeah, you know, um, and and then you know they get a burnout, and you know, and and as the recession. Um, came, what we found was that we had nurses who were at home or working part-time. They went full-time. And so we actually, people often will say, there's no nursing shortage. I couldn't find a job. Hmm. Well, that's only because there's this fluctuation in in nursing. You have a whole bunch of people. We, we estimate about 500,000 people uh, who are in the wings, if you will, at home, not using their nursing license. Right. 
Like, yeah, raising a family, not sure they want to get back into the grind. Right, and how do we entice them to yeah. come back and make it worth their while, you know? And I mean, I, I do. I have a lot of friends, too, that have degrees, and they might do one or two shifts, and they might even do an overnight shift or something that pays a little better. But, yeah, they don't – they also see the stress. They see that it's so stressful that do they want to – get back in that. Exactly. Oh, it's incredible. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Katrina Merrill here from Brigham Young University's nursing uh, school. And uh, she's she's walking us through this current day nursing um, crisis. Folks, this is your health care. And if, if you're a baby boomer, you know, we've got for the next 20 years for the foreseeable future. I don't know how this changes. We'll be back uh, continue the discussion here with Dr. Merrill. Stick with us, folks. Doing what we can to help you live longer. One way to do that, let's uh, fix this nursing crisis. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Listen to these numbers. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 1.2 million vacancies will emerge for registered nurses between 2014 and 2022. By 2025, the shortfall is expected to be more than twice as large as any nurse shortage experienced since the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid in the mid-60s. This is not going away it's just not going away. And uh, joining us to talk about the nursing uh, shortage, Dr. Katrina Merrill is um, a, a professor here at Brigham Young University, assistant professor of nursing. And uh, she's she's just walking us through through some of the chaos um, that is surrounding this nursing uh, shortage. Talk to us, um, Katrina. First of all, welcome back. Good Thank you. you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Talk to us about, I mean, what are the options? What do you see and what's like, for example, BYU's faculty uh, in the School of Nursing, what are, what are you trying to do? What's left to do? It seems so complicated. Well, I think uh, one of the things, so uh, BYU's College of Nursing is a baccalaureate program and the, the baccalaureate nurses um, are the leaders. And so uh, we're training future nurses to be those uh, leaders in healthcare and to um, solve some of these problems. Mm. Because not only, it's not just the workforce issue, but it's also um, when we when we get new nurses, we lose them in the first and second year. Um, as many as 30% um, percent of new nurses uh, quit and change their their professions really because it's so stressful yeah because they are they come unprepared uh, for that um the diversity that they see and the life and the death and the you know and, and so i think the other thing that we need to to consider is that uh we as a, a as a people need to also be healthier because yeah. we're we're creating that burden um, you know, with the obesity and diabetes and and all of that, we're creating that burden, and we don't see our responsibility in that. Um, th- and you know, yes, there's an aging population, and we we want people to age, and yeah. that's great. But um, 
uh, people over 65, uh, most of them have uh, some sort of chronic condition. Yeah, and multiple and, chronic conditions. Right, and, and those all require health care. And so um, the demand for health care is increasing as well as uh, the need for more nurses. So we need to be better employers uh, for nurses. We need to um, create an environment where nurses will want to stay. And, um, you know, gone are the days when the nurses are treated poorly, hmm. you know, th those kinds of things. Yeah. And, you know, I think historically that was an issue. I, and now I think employers and, and the whole healthcare team are um, concentrating on, on the fact that we're in this together. We are a team. We're all here to help people become the healthiest they can be. Yeah. What percentage of the nurses are male and what percentage female on average? The, the average right now, according to the American Nurses Association, is about 9% uh, male nurses. We are seeing, you know, uh, an increase in that and that's great. Yeah. Um, I, I think the interesting thing, uh, because nursing is such a physical profession, the one of the things, I mean, and maybe this is a little bit selfish of me, but uh, is when you have uh, male nurses, they, they really help with that. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is that's interesting is, you know, when you're working in a profession, I worked at Primary Children's and it was great to have, um, you know, male nurses uh, with our young um, boys, you know, to help them, you know, in their illnesses. And I find that um, the male nurses are, are just amazing. Yeah. And I, I wish more um, men would choose nursing. In the BYU nursing program, we actually have a little bit higher percentage. And I love to see that because they have experiences of missions and yeah. they, they speak other languages. And they are they show so much compassion to um, to the elderly. And, they, you know, and, and a lot of them do go on to school, you know, um, on to master's degrees because they're supporting their family. Right. And maybe want more money. But right now um, – Nurse anesthetists, like 47% of nurse anesthetists are male. Are they? Yeah. In fact, so, I have some friends doing that. And again, these are all rigorous programs. These are – nursing is, is probably one of the most rigorous bachelor's degrees it seems like you can get. Oh, absolutely. Because um, it's science-based, but then you have the whole human side and the human sciences and the social behavior stuff. Well, and our, you know, at least our students will complain that we want a life in college. Right. And they, you know, because we do have them work in 12-hour shifts at the hospital in addition to going to, you know, to school all day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on one day they'll have classes the entire day and then the other day they'll be in, you know, a 12-hour shift. So it's very physically demanding. Yeah. Um, in addition to that emotionally um, demanding as well. And nursing requires uh, – one part that people don't really think about is the critical thinking aspect of nursing. You know, putting everything together and saying um, this isn't right. You know, this patient isn't looking right based on the, the data, mm -hmm. based on my experience. And um, really diagnosing, figuring it out. Yeah, knowing when to, to, to call um, someone, when to um, recognize recommend that we do something different. You know, nurses in a hospital are there with the patient 24-7. And they are the eyes and ears of everyone on the team. And to call in, you know, and work and call a team huddle and say, mm -hmm. hey, you know, what do we need to do different? And I mean, yeah, and I guess aggregate like information from all of the other nurses on staff or the thing I noticed. So I was an EMT uh, in college on an ambulance. And um, you know, a lot of the EMTs would then become EMT 
level twos or whatever, IV certified. Then they just kind of progressed and became paramedics. And then many of them would just go to the fire department. But it seems like there's a nice progression in the medical field where you might be able to get in and start just moving your way up. Is Do you feel like there's is, – is it easy for somebody that's been a um, – what do they call the um, – a, a certified nurse assistant to make it to an associate RN, then to make it to a baccalaureate, then to make it to a master's? Is that a natural progression? Oh, absolutely. That you can kind of do as you're working your way up, managing your family, trying to keep everything alive? Right. And I actually think that's – actually, that's the way I started. Yeah. You know, um, it seems like I, a very natural way to do it and do it as you're – and you're already getting the experience. Like I look at the – even just the EMTs that are working in an emergency room have got a lot of great experience that would be very helpful in the nursing program to just move up into it. It really it really does help to have um, some experience to know that healthcare is the place for you because, you know, it's – you know, like maybe you like science, but you don't like people. Uh-huh, <laughs> that's right. not a good combination in a nurse. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I think that's where we get back to that employer responsibility, taking people that you know to be compassionate, smart individuals and um, optimizing that by offering tuition reimbursement mm-hmm. and, and partnering um, with, you know, colleges and, and things like that and uh, – and growing, yeah. growing your own, if you will. Because um, that just seems like I, I know people that go get a job at a hospital because they know that they'll get tuition reimbursement and they can kind of move their way up. But to me, too, I look at, at all of these CNAs out there that many of them may wonder if they could do the chemistry. They may wonder if they could actually get through some of the science. But they love nursing. Or they love being there. And they want to be more than a CNA. Right, right. And that's where we need to partner with them yeah. and mentor. You know, I think that, um, there, you know, there's a lot of people out there that as they listen to this, they think, well, how come I can't get into the nursing program? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I tell people is, you know, don't give up. If you want to be a nurse, be a nurse. Figure you know, out a way. Figure out a way. Figure out a, an opening. And then continue your education because we never stop learning. Right. If I practiced the way I did when I graduated here from Brigham Young University, um, I would be very negligent. You'd be arrested. Right, back right. Back in the day, from what you learned back in the day to what right. you learned today. And, and that's with every profession. Mm-hmm. We all progress and grow. And so you're never done. Right. And so I think that's the beauty. That's the beauty of the nursing profession um, is that you can continue to grow. And the, I have loved being a nurse because um, I've been able to work full-time, part-time, not at all mm-hmm. when my kids were little. You know, um, It fits your life. It does. It does. It also contributes to the nursing shortage <laughs> right. as people come in and out of the workforce. Mm-hmm. There's actually a controversy about whether there is a shortage or not yeah. because um, you know, if you look at some areas – um, where they have lots of nursing schools and lots of hospitals, most nurses actually they kind of stay where they graduate, and so um, there's pockets where you have an overabundance. Um, but then again, you know, out in the rural areas that aren't considered as fun to work in, um, you know, or you know, no one wants to move out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they really have that shortage. They don't. They also have. Um, I mean, there's other areas. There's nursing educators. There's like you were talking about, just somebody that could go out and educate people about their health. There's other areas that I, I just think of 30% of these nurses just kind of go into a completely different field. 
that's crazy. These every one of these nurses had to be in the clinic. They had to be in touching, dealing with patients, and yet they still thirty percent opt out. Right, right, because of the stress and yeah. because we don't support that. Yeah. So there are so many options in nursing. That's what's so great about it. Right. Um, you know, today one of the the major things is like informatics and um, computer, right. you know, technology, um, electronic health records. So I'm hoping that people will take their skills, you know, like if they're interested in computer science, but they're also interested in, you know, in taking care of patients because that's a huge need. Oh, yeah. This, um, and that's never going away, the tech side of nursing. Right. And, you know, it used to be that about 60 percent of nurses worked in hospitals. But that's changing. As we, um, you know, as we try to become healthier, we're trying to take care of people and not hospitalize mm-hmm. them and not readmit them. And so um, it used to be about 60-40. Um, now it's about 50-50. Is it really? And so nurses are going to see their roles change change and be um, less acute care. But if there's so many opportunities, it's actually really fun. Yeah. I mean, it's a great field. And then then there's still, it seems like the wall. And the wall is getting the degree, the certificate, getting through that process. What recommendations would you give to anybody that's listening that is stuck, that you know has, has been rejected from a nursing school or two? When you say keep trying, what, what else should they be trying? Should they Go to more for-profit organizations. Just stick to the university's non-for-profit. Does it matter? Um, well, I think it matters. I mean, you know, for, first of all, you have to to go to an accredited uh, right place. Uh, you know, um, it, it's unfortunate to see people pay tuition somewhere uh. um, and find out that they're not accredited. So that's the number one thing: is yeah. you need to find an accredited school, and then you need to find out what they're looking for. You know, um, if you if there are prerequisites that you need to take, take them, but do well in them. And so, yeah, you may have to take those prerequisites again mm-hmm. um, to get a better grade, to be more competitive. I think there's other things that um, nursing schools are looking for than just a grade. They're looking for that empathy. They're looking for that service. So, um, you know, go out and serve the community. Show that you are someone that we would trust taking care of, you know, my grandma, you know. Right. Um, that, I think, is is huge. And then, you know, seek scholarship support. I mean, you know, some of these programs are expensive. Um, but there's a, there are some funding out there and there's some scholarships. There's some ways – and if, you know, if all that fails, get a job like as a CNA and get some employer tuition reimbursement. But, you know, if you are that person who, who everyone wants to take care of you, you know, if you're a CNA, um, you're that person that the, the hospital or clinic's going mm-hmm. to want to support to go to school. Don't, don't give that dream up. Exactly. I mean, and that's, that's hopeful. And I guess if anybody's out there listening that's also kind of been out of the game – how do they get back in? If some of them, I'm assuming, were a, are a little fearful, like things have changed. I've been out for ten years. There are programs, um, refresher programs, um, and there's also uh, employers that are willing to work with you. You know, you say, "Hey, you know, I I want to get back in, and and how can I do that?" And there's universities that will help. Um, you know, refresh your skills. You know, I think that even if if nurses want to go part-time, you know, it, it's a it's a great 
way to give back. You know, and you get paid for it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and keep, and I guess, and you keep your skills up, right? And so, then you keep your licensing clean and legit, I guess. Right, right. Well, um, it's a big deal. Uh, as we kind of walk away, what should I mean? And maybe you've already told us: stay healthy. Anything else that we can do, just as regular citizens, to help, you know, promote this to, to figure out how we can help in the nursing shortage. I think be better consumers of of healthcare. Um, know um, what you're what you're getting into. Um, ask questions. Speak up. Um, you know, and then encourage people um, that you know, uh, men, women, to become nurses. Choose nursing as a, a second career. Um, you know, I think really appreciating nurses. Mm-hmm. You know, those are some of the things that we can You almost do. don't know how great they are till you've had a bad one or until exactly. you don't have one, I guess. Exactly. Good stuff. Well, Katrina Merrill, Dr. Katrina Merrill, we appreciate you and the great work you're doing. Good luck. Uh, good luck fixing the crisis, thank Dr. You. Merrill. That's a hard, hard, uh, hard job. But uh, thank your nurses, folks. We ought to just have a nurse appreciation day. Absolutely. Everybody hug a nurse today. That's what we're going to do. We'll take a break, uh, come back, continue, figure out uh, other things we can do to, to live a healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you think about your own uh, professional life, don't you remember being a college student and you thought, I really want to be a nurse. I want to be a nurse. And then you go take a chemistry class and you're like, I hate nursing. So all of a sudden there's a huge shortage. It's not going away of nurses. Looks like it's going to be that way for 20, 30 years. And meanwhile, we you feel completely beat down, unable, incapable of passing the chemistry requirements to get into the program. What do you do? Do you remember that disheartening feeling when you realize maybe I just can't be what I want to be? Well, or maybe you can. Maybe you just find another way to do it. Maybe you, you know, you get into the field and you maybe you have to take that chemistry class two or three times to get in. But in the end, it seems like we could, you know, you got to know what your dreams are. You got to know what your goals are. And I just believe there's certain people that are called that are incredibly apt, able people that make a perfect nurse. So if you are one of those people, just go do whatever you can to to be what you want to be. And that's in any field. You you can make anything happen if you're if you really want to make it happen. It just at some point jobs are hard, I get it. And I mean I, I know people that took the MCAT for medical school two or three times. It's not ideal. I get it. Took three years longer to get in. I get it. But if that's really what you want to be, be it. Or find another way to get into the same field and do the same thing. I never, ever wanted to be a therapist because I learned about Freud and I thought those people are messed up. <laughs> so I don't do therapy. I do more coaching and got as many as much information and education I could about humans and human development. So I compensated by going into a different area 
And it just so happens now that a lot of people go to coaches instead of therapists. But I also feel like I'm pretty well trained to do it. So figure out a, a, a workaround, right? Get to get to the solution. And if it's just, you know, an associate's degree in nursing or a bac- baccalaureate, it's a very hard word to say, or just a nursing practitioner. Interesting stuff, folks. Man, it's the last thing we need is a shortage of nurses. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll be back next hour. More tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What impact are all these judges having on us? None of you are, you know, really impacted by a judge, are you? Yeah, we all are. And not just at the Supreme Court level. I mean, just the decision uh, that of uh, gay marriage. That just remember the impact that that had on your community, on discussions in your community. You know, a decision. It's it does get the the conversations going, right? It gets us talking, and um, and and I think there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in being able to discuss stuff. In fact, I'm convinced. If we could communicate better, we wouldn't be as impacted by the justices. One of the things I've been learning a lot about the Supreme Court is they really are a very unified body in that they have a rule, for example, that when they hear um, – and this is when they're in chambers, not in front of everybody. But when they when they go through and make and have discussions about certain issues, they have a rule that everybody at the table – has to answer and give their opinion about the issue before anyone can give a second opinion. So nobody can have two comments until everybody's had one comment, which is a really cool principle. And I think the, their ability to maybe think through it, uh, to talk without necessarily having to react to everything, um, it's, I, I think if we could understand how they do it behind the scenes, we might value some of their decisions more. I get, too, that you have your issues and everyone has their position, but but uh, there's also something to see there. And I saw a story that I wanted to bring to all of our attention about a judge in Georgia, in Bibb County, Georgia, um, Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. There's a viral video out with, her, with Verda Colvin um, discussing the consequences with some wayward kids. They, they were in a program. She was a, she's in her robes. They're in the courtroom and she has two sides of the courtroom. The girls are on one side. Young men are on the other side. Uh, Judge Verda Colvin is a, is a African-American female and she's talking to a room predominantly of African-Americans. And um, it was, I think one of the most beautiful sites, I think of, of a judge and the power of a judge as she's arguing and making an argument in front of these kids that are in trouble. They're, you know, they're in one of those programs that they're trying to get them some reality. And let me just play a few of, um, of her points. One of the first things she's telling them is you're going to have a choice here. You're, you're either going to end up in court or, or a body bag. You can have the ultimate experience. 
be in this body bag. And the only way somebody will know you're in here is by this tag that will have your name on it. What do you want to do? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What do you want to do? What? That's what you might want to start doing. Because listen to me. The way you're going, you will go to jail. Or you will end up in this body bag. Mm. She also uh, is, is pleading with them to be something. You're special. You're uniquely made. Stop acting like you're trash and putting pictures of yourself on the internet. Stop being disrespectful to your parents. Care about your future. Be somebody. Anybody can be nothing. It doesn't take anything to be nothing. Be something. Do you understand what I'm saying? Care about yourselves. The fact that you're shedding tears means you want to be better and you want to do better. Do it. The only person stopping you is you. Do better than what you've been doing. Do you understand me? Mm. Don't you love that? This is this is a civil servant helping you parents raise your kids, helping all of us. I mean, think about it. If you had a child that was wayward and struggling, wouldn't you love a judge like Superior Judge, uh, Court Judge Verda Colvin telling your kids this? Um, another thing she says is don't let your school or don't let your family become an excuse. But you don't have to make a decision that you're going to do something different. And don't use your family situation as an excuse. You hear me? Don't use that as an excuse. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know where you live. But don't use it as an excuse. Anything either of you all are going through, somebody else went through it who's successful now. Mm, last but not least, she's going to help all of us remember that we're special. Nobody else can do what you're supposed to do in this world. Nobody else. And if you don't do it, we won't have it. I, I continue to believe one reason why our society is so messed up, because some people who were supposed were born to do certain things just dropped the ball. They didn't do it. And so for every person who didn't do what they needed to do because they were given unique gifts and talents, we're missing something as a society. Mm. An eight-minute speech by Bibb County Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. We're special. You've got to deliver something. If you don't deliver it, guess what? Nobody does. We don't get it. And kids, you have a choice. Court, at this rate, you're going to be in court and jail or you're going to be in a body bag. I love it. I guess that's judicial activism. Yeah, everybody needs to hear it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know, you think about it. It's just easy to say, well, you know, if these people would just, uh, you know, save their money... They wouldn't get in this trouble, and then they wouldn't have kids that have behavior problems. Oh, great. Easy for you to say. Again, most of us, I don't feel, truly get what it feels like to um, to be completely underwater financially. You know, where you've got four lives hanging on your paycheck, and it's already 30 40% below what you need. So let's be careful not to judge. Let's be careful not to not to just quickly critique and assume that th- this is just simply because people love to spend money and they don't have self-discipline. There are a lot of heroes 
that I think if we could go and look at, you know, maybe the average worker at a fast food restaurant, a mother with a couple children at home trying to make a living. And again, you may not like these minimum uh, uh, minimum wage options that are being proposed out there. And again, I'm a business owner too. I'm not a – I don't love being told exactly how much you have to pay somebody. When I have to have the discussion with my son to come vacuum my office and um, he asks me how much will you pay me and I tell him minimum wage and he's like, yeah, no, not doing that. I won't. I won't work for that. And I'm like, you're 14, boy. <laughs> this was a few years ago. You're 14. Well, I can get 10 you know, working on a food truck. No, you can't. Well, yeah, I can. Well, he got his job. He got a job this summer. And uh, he's going to wash cars for just a, under minimum wage, but some tips. Went to his first day of school or of, of work. Came home that night. How'd it go, son? Yeah, I want a new job. It's interesting. Work is hard, but uh, be grateful for what you do have, right? You, If you have the blessing or the benefit now to actually be ahead financially or just breaking even financially, it's a huge benefit to you that you may not even understand. People that have money live longer. Well, duh, because they can just sit at the beach. and Maybe, but some of it's simply because when you have money – you live in a different location. You live in a healthier place. Data has existed uh, from the American Medical Association talking about the fact that simply where you choose to live in the country will determine your life expectancy too. Right? This is this is the diet you're going to end up participating in. This is the, the friends your kids are going to have. Smoking, drugs, alcohol, all of those things decline when you have more income, interestingly. Would you believe that? According to a study in 2010, uh, in the annual review of sociology, poorer people are more likely to smoke and drink in excess, which are both potential causes of dying younger. So there's a lot of this that's tied to your income. Exercise. People with more money are more likely to exercise. Well, sure, they got the time. That's totally true. The exercise a lot of the the um, poorer people might get is running to the bus that then has to drive them for two hours to their job. That's their exercise. They sit more time probably on mass transit trying to get to their home that's affordable. And wealthier people have the luxury maybe of just getting in a car or taking a shorter ride to their home. They're able to live maybe closer to work. Statistically, uh, uh, wealthier people are more educated, which decreases uh, or increases your your revenues, your incomes. There's a ton of benefits to it, and wealthier people have more access to health care. And when we now find out that your debt... And your debt load impact your child's behavior. Kids whose parents have unsecured debt, who are constantly trying to get the credit card bills paid, who are going to payday loans, those their kids are going to struggle. Which came first, the kid or the payday loan? I would apparently 
argue it's the debt. And there's a million reasons why people are in debt. Remember that. We are so quick to judge and we can't just judge. If we want to create a healthier community, then let's go fight for better rules, better laws to manage what people can charge as interest. I mean, I guess it's beautiful to just have capitalism, but there's a cost to capitalism that we are now maybe learning. And some of the costs to some forms of capitalism, or at least just extreme money-making mentalities, is simply it might be impacting our health and our, and our behavior of our children. I mean, let's just look at it. You don't have to love it. But we can start to figure out why some people just can't seem to get out of this hole instead of having an immediate reaction that oh, they're just not trying hard enough. Let's reverse it. Let's, wouldn't that be a great test? Reverse it for real. Have all of Congress go live in an inner city. Let's see how they handle it. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. It's out there, and you're part of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting, interesting uh, topic coming up. Do you feel generally exhausted at the end of the day? Frequently, many of us require a couple of energy drinks to get through the day. But what if you could energize your day without chugging a monster or a three-hour energy drink? Our guest today may have found just such a solution. Tom Rath is the author of Are You Fully Charged? He is a, a New York Times number one bestseller, uh, best-selling author, um, and he, he's, he's also the author of some of my favorite books, Vital Friends, made a big difference in my life, also Strengths Finder and Strengths-Based Leadership. You've heard me talk about that before on the show, and Tom's been on the show before, but uh, let's get to him. Tom, uh, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show again. Great talking to you again. Great having you. This is, to me, uh, an essential book, and I love the front of it because it looks like you know, the, those charging cells that we see on every one of our devices, if we're fully charged or not. But when it comes to being a human being, being charged is and energized, it's, it's a hard thing to do today. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, as you, as you were talking about, and I was just thinking about it, we spend a lot more time stressing out about and worrying about charging our darn devices than we do uh, thinking about how do we make sure that we're charged as workers and parents and spouses on a regular basis. Right. And and it's not I mean we it's almost like chemically we're looking just for a chemical charge, but what seems so interesting about your approach in this book is it's there's more to get charged about than just having more chemicals in your system. Yeah, you know, when I when we were looking at what does it really take for someone to be fully charged on a daily basis that we, we weren't trying to answer the question of what are all the things that are important in life to have a really meaningful life over decades. We're essentially going through a lot of research trying to determine what are the things that people need to remember to do on a daily, hourly basis in order to finish a day and feel like you really had at least half the energy you possibly could. On average, when we started, we learned that just 11% of people said they had a great deal of energy throughout the day yesterday when they thought about the day in totality. So we've got a long ways to go there in terms of 
how much uh, how much more energy and meaning and stronger relationships we could create on a daily basis. That is sad. I mean, what are the rest of us doing? I get. I mean, if if eleven percent felt like they had a, a good, healthy dose of energy, I, I'm, I can only imagine what percentage felt like they had no energy. Right. Is yeah, it's, it's, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, tell us what is what are, what are you finding is the key? What's the key to getting and keeping energy? The key is really to think about and structure your day so that it guides you in the right direction and kind of nudges you in various places uh, so that you're making small decisions in the moment throughout the day that also happen to be aligned with all those long-term interests. You know, I've, the book I worked on before this was called uh, Eat, Move, Sleep, and I learned a lot going deep on those topics around physical health from a behavioral scientist who's an expert on the topic of how our decisions and choices affect what we eat, uh, Brian Wansink. And, you know, he's done all those great studies that a lot of your listeners have probably heard of where if you have a clear bowl on the table with fruit, you eat a lot more of that than if you have a bowl sitting out with uh, candy or chips or unhealthy snacks there. And uh, he was a part of a documentary that we just finished around this most recent book, Fully Charged. And he talks about the way in his own home with it, for himself and his uh, wife and children, he has the... Uh, potato chips or the tortilla chips up in the laundry room in a cabinet that far away mm. so it's not the first thing you see when you're in the kitchen or an area yeah. where you normally eat and beyond the area of just food and eating what i've learned through all my own research is that we can structure our days so we have more frequent interactions with the people who give us a boost throughout the day we can uh, structure the things we do at work so that we see the meaning our work is creating for other people and we can structure our routine so that we're active while we're working throughout the day instead of sitting dormant in a chair for eight hours on a typical work day. So there are all these little things we can do structurally, small adjustments that are also aligned with the long-term goals that we all know we should be thinking about but are not taking time to do. Yeah. Is it uh, – you break it down into – the book down into three, I guess, kind of areas, meaning, interaction, and energy talk to us um talk to us a little bit about the, those what i mean it seems like first of all just having a job that you can go to every day that has some meaning for you is 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 something that that anybody could do and even if you already have the job and there's not so much meaning in it for you can't we create meaning we can you know it's, sometimes you hear a word like meaning or mission or purpose and they sound like these much higher-level needs that might descend from above on a really sunny day. But yeah. when scientists go in and study how meaning is actually created in jobs by asking, they asked uh, uh, Teresa Amababla, excuse me, at Harvard, and her uh, colleagues asked 10,000 workers to write journals about their days across a variety of professions. Went back and studied all these journals, entries of what led to well-being, what led to satisfaction in people's jobs. And they found that the number one thing that created uh, good jobs for people, that, where people enjoyed what they were doing, is they found small ways to connect the meaning of the work they were doing on a daily basis. And so when you look at uh, food service workers, for example, when they can see the people they're cooking food for, they do better work. They make higher quality food. They even make more nutritious food when you can see your customer. Mm -mm. Um, 
And same thing applies in very different job where it struck me they were looking at a group of radiologists, and I would have thought, well, if you're a radiologist, you're doing meaningful work. You're trying to save people with cancer or heart disease on a daily basis. Right. right? But when, you, when they looked at these radiologists and they had one group of radiologists just keep doing their normal work for several days, a second experimental group went through and they had a photo of a patient appended to the record. So instead of just seeing an anonymous patient number and name, you could see a picture of that the face of the person, they wrote 23% longer reports based on the scans they were looking at, and it increased their diagnostic accuracy by 46%. Hmm. So even if you're doing meaningful work, you've got to find ways to step back and connect how your efforts today serve another human being at a very basic level. Yeah, and and that takes, I mean, that takes intentionality. You got to, you got to make that happen, don't you? you got to make that happen, and then if you can help another person to do that. Sometimes it's easier to do that on behalf of someone you care about, a friend or a colleague, uh, than it is to do it for yourself on a regular basis. That is so true. In your book, too, you talk about small wins are a great way to create and, and, and connect some meaning. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, it's really the – we have these kind of myths of – these grand big projects and efforts that you put a lot of time into, but we have a, there's a fundamental human need for progress and to see that you did something that made a difference. You didn't just get to inbox zero. You had one conversation. Even if you're working in a call center, for example, and someone calls in and they're irate and so frustrated they never want to do business with your organization again, and if you just get that person back to neutral, that may be a bigger win than you can imagine in terms of how that's minimized stress and hostility in that person's subsequent interactions as they move forward throughout their day. And so acknowledging those little things can be very powerful throughout the day. And I guess that's why you organize this, like you kept talking about our day, our daily our daily structure. If I'm doing a bunch of things that don't necessarily seem like wins to me, or if I'm not connecting them to meaning, then I'm spending my day doing things that don't reinvigorate me. Right. And that's, it is important. I think it's a great thought that you've got to find those little things where you notice that they do reinvigorate you throughout the day and make sure you find and build even more of those opportunities into the following day. The, the second real key that, uh, we learned in the research that people need every day is we need a far more positive than negative interactions. And it sounds obvious on the surface, but there's a lot of science behind the fact that one negative interaction essentially counterbalances three, four, five positive interactions. And so um, we need to figure out how even in just brief interactions with strangers, if you're ordering a cup of coffee or you bump into someone in a coffee shop, how do you keep more and more of those interactions, at least 80% of them, have a little bit more of a positive bent than a negative bent. Wow, and uh, I, I'd never thought of that because I, in my, when I'm off the air, eventually I I go see clients and talk to clients, and a lot of the clients are having negative interactions. So if I don't compensate by making sure a lot of my other interactions are highly positive, I that could be one of the sources of energy drain. Yeah, it is. I mean, one of the things that I've realized uh, the first the first book that I worked on was uh, called How Full Is Your Bucket? And it was all about this uh, simple theory I learned from my grandfather about, you know, every little interaction you make a choice that either uh, essentially picks someone up a bit or it takes something from their bucket that day. And 
the the thing that I think we're all um, kind of just blessed with in terms of having the opportunity and the choice is that we can't control the random stranger we bump into who might be in a really bad mood today, but we get to choose our response. And mm. in that choice of a response, we can either do something that um, makes things a lot worse for that person and for ourselves, or we can choose to try and turn that around. And at a minimum, that protects us and it protects our friends and family members we'll see for the rest of the day. And it might even help that other person a bit. Wow. It, uh, I agree. Totally. And, and, and the choice constantly, always, I guess, is ours. We can't, like you say, you, you can't determine everybody's mood, but I can I can turn mine around and I can even turn around how I see it, how I interpret it. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, six-time bestseller. Tom Rath is his name. If you've ever heard of these books, the book we're talking about today, Are You Fully Charged? Eat, Move, Sleep from 2015 was huge. Strengths Finder, Strengths-Based Leadership, How Full Is Your Bucket, Well-Being, Vital Friends, some great books, deeply and I think incredibly researched, well-researched. Um, the latest research with uh, great psychology, folks. It's, it's a perfect combination. Stick with us. We'll continue with our author, Tom Rath, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Tom Rath is on the phone with us. Um, he is the author of the latest, his latest book, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Your Life. He's been talking about uh, the need for, you truly need some form of you know interaction. You need, when it comes right down to it, you need the energy to do it. And you need some connection to 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 mission, to purpose, um, meaning in life. And uh, that's all found in his book, Are You Fully Charged? Tom, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. It's been fun talking to you. Good having you again. Uh, talk to us about um, this idea of finding a, a higher calling. I mean, it seems like in our market economy, everyone's looking for a, a job that brings in the cash. But what does the research say about having a higher calling than just cash? Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating to me how the, money obviously matters, and it matters a lot in terms of meeting our basic needs of food and shelter and sustenance, being able to provide for our family. So money matters, but yet we often make decisions about our job and career and what we do for our families that act as if or treat money like it's the only outcome or the only dependent variable. And all of the research that I've looked at on daily well-being, on well-being over a lifetime, makes it pretty clear that money is one of four or five important things in our lives. And things like our social relationships and the meaning we're contributing to the world and our physical health, those actually matter, may matter more than the financial part of the mm. equation. And the, a lot of really good work uh, coming out over the last decade from Gallup and other places makes it pretty clear that most of the stress and negative emotions uh, provided by money are alleviated once you reach a level somewhere between forty and $75,000 of household income in the United States in particular. And after that point, we may imagine that every doubling in 
uh, income doubles our happiness, but it really only improves our happiness by uh, around 8% roughly from some of that wow. work with each doubling of income. But yet we put so much priority on that, and it, it, it's probably a lot more important that we have that attachment of mission and purpose and meaning to our work and continue to strive for that over time once we've reached a basic level of financial substance. You know, there's a, a researcher at uh, Yale, Amy Brzezinski, who she's, she talks about and has studied how we essentially can progress from a job that's just not that much more than a paycheck to a career and then to having a true calling in life, which is where you're doing something that you feel is kind of the embodiment of your life's work and you know it's making a real difference to society. And I think we always, we're all going to find ourselves at various points on that continuum over a lifetime where sometimes you do just need a job because it's hard to get a job. Right. And you can find, you can, once you have that job, you can continue to peck away at something that turns into more of a career and eventually a calling over time. It, uh, it, it, it seems like in a lot of your work, Tom, people matter. Um, and like you brought up earlier, the interactions that we have with people are one of these keys that could bring us energy. I guess they, they can also – it might be an also sometimes a source of the lack of energy. Give us some of your um, – just some strategies we can have to, to make better you know, use of our interactions or to better connect into these relationships and these people in our lives. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question because it may be focusing on the importance of building and growing our best relationships may be the thing that we underestimate most in our lives. I, uh, My late graduate advisor, Christopher Peterson, he started off the first day of my uh, master's program with a slide in PowerPoint, and he said, I'm going to give you the whole degree in one slide, and it's other people matter. <laughs> um, and it, it still just rings so true for me on a daily basis where – there's nothing that matters more than the people around us for our overall well-being, but yet we so often don't take the time to step back and nurture and develop those relationships. And as you said, it's also important to acknowledge if there are people that you interact with on a daily basis who constantly stress you out and are essentially giving you secondhand stress at work each day, how can you build your days to minimize that effect a little bit? I think uh, most of your listeners probably have someone that comes to mind when they hear the person that gives you secondhand stress. <laughs> you know, I've been conscious of how do I minimize the secondhand stress that I'm exuding and radiating to other people. I know there are times when I'm in a rush throughout the day just trying to get a lot done, and when people come into contact with me, I'm probably in in a mode that rubs off as stress for other people. So how do you make sure that you're not radiating that energy throughout the day as well? And then just, to, I mean, in this day and age, to take the time to have a conversation where you're genuinely listening to someone you care about with your smartphone not even visible or anywhere in sight is another very important thing to do. I, I was struck by some of the research as I was working on this latest book about how if I take my phone out and place it on a table, even if it's powered off, it's not ringing or dinging or buzzing or anything else, that sends an implicit message to everyone around the room that that phone comes before them and it degrades the quality of the conversation wow. for everyone in the room. Yeah, no, it's true. You've been in a meeting where they do that, right? Where they, it, you know, if that phone rings, I, I've been in a divorce mediation and somebody takes a call and you're thinking, are you kidding? This is the most important meeting you're going to have that will impact the f rest of your future 
and you're going to just go negotiate your cleaning at your house. Right, and that's we've got to stop and think about what what really deserves to break into an important conversation in life and what doesn't, and then how do you minimize all those other distractions, whether it's through do not disturb or turning a ringer mm-hmm. off. Or I've been so conscious with uh, my kids are uh, five and seven now, and to make sure that I just have the phone completely stowed away when I'm spending good time with them as much as possible. It, it is psychological. I've seen somebody just literally on their phone, you could see their pecking order of where you fit in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Some Certain people they won't go to, other people they'll immediately choose over you. Um, so putting the technology away, and I love the idea too of making sure that we don't radiate this stress. Um, anything else that when it comes to I mean, if I, I remember our last interview was on Eat, Move, Sleep, which is such a great resource. If you just are low in energy, Eat, Move, Sleep, go get that book because that's – it's a definite source. What else do we need to know before we let you go about um, being charged and fully charged? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the energy piece because it, what I've learned on how do we make sure that we're better listeners and spouses and parents on a daily basis – a lot of it does come back to those micro choices where um, I, I realized this as I was working on that book, Eat, Move, Sleep, about the physical energy part where um, I, I went out to lunch on a real nice day, uh, kind of like today, sunny, and a nice day to be out hiking around with my kids. We went out to brunch, and I had a, a really unhealthy lunch. I, I, I didn't, I'm not that good at resisting temptation and got a big... Uh, eggs benedict comes covered in hollandaise sauce and mm. fried potatoes it comes out with biscuits and gravy i just eat everything on the table and it, normally i think okay you indulge once in a while it's not a big deal but that day i connected the fact that i was half asleep on the couch and my daughter was asking me to go play at the park and i didn't have the energy to be a good dad because of the little choice that i made at brunch that day and we see that play out countless times there there are hundreds of small choices we make, not only about what we eat, but whether we go for a brief walk at lunch, whether we initiate a conversation with someone and ask them a question and then genuinely listen while they uh, walk by us in the hallway at work one day. And it, it's in those choices that shape our daily well-being. And what I've learned from this recent research is that to a large degree, our lives are the accumulation of those little choices that not only affect us, but then continue to have an important influence once we're gone, ideally. Oh, so true. And and the micro, the, 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 the day is made up of, I guess, dozens and dozens of these micro choices, but they could, they really set the table for the rest of the day. And they the rest of the relationships. The rest of the relationship. And then if you, if you make the right choices and you get a little activity and you have some good conversations and you do a little meaningful work, it's a lot easier to get a good night's sleep that night, and it starts an upward spiral where you have progressively better days. Mm. As we wrap it up, Tom, what, what would you say uh, is, is the number one thing we all just need to remember? Hands down, this one idea pays huge dividends in our energy and feeling fully charged in life. What's something we can all walk away with today? You know, I think the thing that has probably changed my uh, energy levels and productivity most in in recent years has been to try and find ways to have these meaningful conversations and to do work while I'm moving around. And it, it may sound simple, but we've spent a century architecting our lives based around the principle that we should sit down all day after laying down all night. And the more you're active throughout the day, whether you're 
I'm, I'm just kind of pacing around on a, on a headset as we talk right now, for example, instead of sitting in a chair, because I think better when I'm moving around. And mm. I have more enlightening conversations with my wife and kids and friends when we go out for a walk and talk. And so I'd, I'd encourage people just to minimize the amount of time they spend sitting starting today. Try and add as many little steps. Don't worry about exercising. Just add as many steps into your life, and you'll see that you have more and more energy as you continue to do that. Yeah. Tom Rath, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work. You got another book in the works, though? Not right now. We're just have a documentary around this fully charged with a lot of these experts whose research I've talked about that's coming out this month. And um, so we've been pretty focused yeah. on that right now. Okay. Well, we'll be looking for that. And uh, everybody go to TomRath.org. Great website, his blog, his books, everything you need there. And the information on the documentary is there. Tom Rath, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Great stuff, folks. Great source uh, and resource for all of us. Um, Great, great information necessary to to get your life back. We'll take a break, come back, uh, continue this discussion, you know, taking your life back, making better choices in the moment. That's up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, I wanted to take this uh, moment to do a little Coach's Corner and talk about um, politics. One of the things that I run into, because I have six children, and I'm trying to raise them in a healthy world, right? But my kids are all uh, from years of 10 years of age up to 22. And they're getting into this political race, every one of them. Uh, the other night we were watching one of the debates and every one of my kids from 10 up had questions about what's going on. They, they asked things like, why is Donald such a such a bully? You know, is Hillary Clinton going to jail because of her emails? I ask them, where do you guys get these ideas? And they say they're talking about it in school. So they're bringing up the debates in their school. And it dawned on me that um, – I probably need to be teaching my kids more about politics and about how this process works. So I put together some points about how to raise positive people instead of powerful politicians. I also realized that uh, there's probably no more political environment that exists than in the halls of a junior high school where it's, you know, the jocks versus the geeks versus the whatever, surfers, whatever you've got, the, the, the boarders, whatever you call them, the skaters. It's political. It's a crazy political world. And so here are three very basic lessons um, uh, that I try to teach my kids from what we're seeing in a debate, for example – and real-life situations that they can go use in their own world. Number one, actions speak louder than words, right? Let our actions do the talking, not our words. You'll notice some politicians can get up there and just talk about their, their results um, because they, they have results, or any of the candidates do. They talk about what they've done in their life that shows that they're a trustworthy candidate. Uh, some people, though, also try to use their words to cover up their past, Gandhi had a great quote that said, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. 
So if if you've had bad behavior in the past, try to talk all you want about it. It doesn't go away by you talking. It goes away by getting results. So positive people trust that their past is going to do the talking for them. They might need to you know share their past, but they don't need to exaggerate. They don't need to name call. They don't need to make stuff up about others, which we see going on in this political debate. We, we, we don't have to be full of anger and name-calling in order to get and be seen. We also, you'll notice when people are starting to up the rhetoric, when they're starting to become more aggressive, when they speak louder, when their speech is faster, they're probably trying to distract you. They're getting hijacked, I call it, and they're distracting you from the real issue. So notice it. And I talk to my kids about it. A, a, a leader does this. A leader speaks this way. A leader doesn't talk about other people. They talk about their results. They talk about their goals. They don't have to tear down someone else's position. They can focus on their position instead of being calculated and, you know, name-calling. And we've talked about it on the show. In this last election, we've heard, heard about people's hands, hair, spray tan, sweatiness, their tone, all of it. Another rule is value people more than popularity and power. If you want to be an influential leader, then value people. Don't just value being popular. A healthy, positive person sees the inherent worth of everybody. They don't just see people as a voting block. They don't, know, they don't even try to break people into their groups. They try to see that all people are whole. They're all, they all have physical, social, emotional, spiritual needs. Our politicians break us into social groups by color, by race, or by, by gender, by, um, by how much income we make. We, we aren't just a bunch of groups. I'm more than my ethnicity. I'm more than my religion. I'm more than my gender. I'm a whole person. So see people as a whole. And also don't see people as just a means to your end. How many times do you feel like these politicians are taking you for granted because you're a means to them getting elected? And I think some of the anger we see in the country is the mere fact that we, we nominate you, we elect you, but we don't end up getting taken care of. And I think that's why so many people are sick and tired of politics. People value the people. Value them for just being a fellow traveler on this earth, not somebody that's going to make you more popular. That, this goes on in high school, too. Whether you're a jock or a cheerleader or a skater or whatever, you've got to just learn to like people instead of using people to get what you want. Last rule I try to teach my kids is the confidence is going to always come from the inside out, not the outside in. That's exactly the opposite of what we see most of our politicians ex, you know, exhibiting. Their confidence comes from their last poll. How many times do the polls get brought up in this process? The person that is talking the most about the polls probably is the most insecure person. The poll is not the key, right? At some point, I need to get my confidence from the inside. Positive, healthy people get their confidence from knowing who they are, knowing what they believe in, having a belief system that they're living. Their confidence comes from being a good person who believes in certain principles and lives certain principles. And they'll stand by their principles even if they don't win the election even if they're not seen as popular. And that changes them on the inside. When we look at the politicians that are constantly shifting and changing, we worry about them. I also, by the way, worry about politicians that can't collaborate. 
you can still try to understand someone else's needs and live your principles and find some meeting place in the middle. Something our, I think our, our politicians are struggling with. This isn't about polls. This isn't about popularity. But I know it is for a 14-year-old kid that wants to be popular with his peer group and might end up doing stupid things in order to get elected or in order to be brought into that peer group. What I'm afraid of, though, is we're seeing the same thing in our political world. Very basic stuff, right? Confidence comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Value people more than popularity and actions speak louder than words. Oh, if I can teach it to my uh, my 12-year-old, my 15-year-old, we could probably teach it to our politicians. Wouldn't that be great? You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. 